For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel and Republican political consultant Neva Hill. Governor-elect Kevin Stitt picks politicos on the national, state, and local level for his top jobs. Kevin Stitt taps Tulsa Deputy Mayor Michael Junk as his chief of staff. Stitt also chose former Republican Broken Arrow Representative Michael Rogers as Secretary of State. And on Wednesday, it was announced he was picking as his Energy and Environment Secretary, Ken Wagner, who works for the EPA and had business ties with former Administrator Scott Pruitt. Neva, what do you think of these choices? I think they're excellent choices. And I think when you look at the resume and credentials, the experience that each of these folks bring to the, the positions that they're going to hold, I mean, you can see that uh, Governor Lexted is being very deliberative in the type of uh, type of folks that he wants in, in these particular jobs. I mean, Michael Junk, uh, the de- uh, Tulsa deputy mayor, former staffer to two United States senators, uh, someone who understands the ins and outs of politics. And I think Kevin Stitt made it clear, I'm going to have a combination of insiders and outsiders. That's a smart that's a smart, uh, I think, uh, plan to have going into uh, being the chief executive for the state. And when you look at um, uh, the resume, as I say, with these folks, I mean, you've got you've got uh, a chief of staff who understands politics, who understands the uh, uh, the ins and outs of, of really every layer of government. Someone who's been deeply involved at the federal level, the state level, the the uh, the uh, municipality level, and that's going to bode well. And I think when you look at uh, uh, Michael Rogers, I mean, here's someone mm-hmm. who left the legislature voluntarily, someone who had been the House Education mm-hmm. Chair, well regarded, and you know he said right up front, look, I, I view my job uh, coming into this as someone who should build and maintain a good rapport with the legislature, something that is, if for Governor Stitt or Governor Stitt in his term to be very effective and successful, he's going to have to have a very strong working relationship with this legislature. So I think those are extraordinarily good picks. Right. Well, and that's something that Governor Fallon never really entirely succeeded at. You know, she never the connection had with the, legislature, the, the connection right. with the legislature. Her relationship with the legislature was always very distant. It's, it's, and, and, he, and towards the end, everyone was against Mary Fallon because they saw her approval ratings in the ditch and they didn't want to be uh, associated with her in their campaigns. They didn't want the party to be associated with her. Uh, Governor-elect Stitt ran a campaign largely distancing himself from Mary Fallon or attempting to. And so, you know, even before that, though, even before her approval numbers went uh, tanked uh, towards the end of her administration, she never really had a very successful proactive legislative agenda where she was out working with the legislature in their districts, in their offices. I mean, you saw that every once in a while, and it would make news whenever it happened, but it wasn't a consistent, sustained effort by her administration. And if Stitt is going to come in and do anything different, and we were already seeing the legislatures out front, we're going to talk a little about the, you know, the first Senate bill has already been filed. The legislature has been driving this train. Now, whether it's been on the tracks or not over the last several years, you know, that's, that's a little bit, that's a different question. But they've been driving this train in Oklahoma for at least the last six years, if not eight years. And I, I think that if uh, Governor Stitt-elect or Governor-elect Stitt is going to have any effect on that, any influence, he's got to start now to build those relationships. And do you think, well, we are, I do want to talk about Ken Wagner being, uh, he's had some business ties with Scott Pruitt. Uh, it, it could be questionable. I Do you think that there's there's a, a fear of being, uh, talk of nepotism or anything like that with these, with these picks? Well, I think I think that Governor-elect Stitt uh, has made it clear that there's no previous connection with uh, Scott Pruitt as the former EPA administrator. The fact that, the fact that his pick now to uh, uh, come into this uh, role in his administration is 
is someone who, frankly, uh, has gotten high marks uh, in Washington as well as in, in Oklahoma. He's someone who really uh, has said all along that, that, that environmental protection and economic development don't have to be at odds. I mean, here's someone who recognizes that, that there, are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of stakeholders that, that come into the mix in the, in the environmental issues and the energy issues, someone with a strong resume in both of those areas, someone with national expertise. I mean, I think when you look at the overall track record and you see someone like that coming into the cabinet of a new administration, you have to say that that's, uh, that looks to be a very strong pick. Well, Ken Wagoner is you know, set to become the Oklahoma Scott Pruitt. I mean, you've, if you look, you know, there, there may not be a relationship between Ken Wagner and, and Governor-elect Stitt, but there is this relationship between Ken Wagner and Scott Pruitt, not only with the EPA, but before that, uh, you know, whenever he was state attorney general, Scott Pruitt uh, gave uh, uh, you know, a, a $600,000 legal contract to Ken Wagner's law firm. I mean, there's this, there's this relationship that exists there. And if you look at who's celebrating this appointment, it's not environmental organizations. It's not the Sierra Club. And, e- and even if you want to, you know, say the Sierra Club, well, they represent maybe the, the extreme left uh, on environmental movements. But the extreme right here, the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association, the oil and gas or, uh, uh, industry, they're the ones celebrating this pick. And I think that when we look at who's going to be safeguarding Oklahoma's environment for the next several years, the fact that the industry that is most responsible for impacting that environment is celebrating this pick, I think raises some concern. But at this point, I mean, given his strong reputation, I think you've even, at least at the at the very preliminary outset here, we're not seeing this outrage out, out of environmental groups. I mean, I think what we see is some is kind of a waiting period of here's someone who has has a reputation, has a track record, uh, has a great relationship, having worked with a lot of uh, what would be contemporaries in neighboring states. Uh, so I think he sets up well to be able to be someone who can have an engaging debate on a lot of these issues and, and to be just kind of tattooed as, you know, the, the guy that somehow is just totally hitched to Scott Pruitt, I think is a bogus argument. I don't think it'll fly very very well here in Oklahoma. The, the Stitt transition team and what we've seen so far, and, and let me be the first to say, man, I am glad that we're not really in this case because Governor-elect Stitt ran an entire campaign of being an outsider, you know, very similar to Donald Trump draining the swamp. I'm glad we're not in a situation where the pilots opened the door to the cabinet and said, hey, who wants to come fly this thing? Because he is bringing in people that do have right, some experience. Right, he is bringing knowledgeable people. But that just seems government. very disingenuous with that outsider message that he'd run on. And, you know, now we're, you know, he attacked Governor, or he attacked uh, Attorney General Drew Edmondson for being in a law firm that received money uh, from a tobacco settlement whenever he was Attorney General. And now we've got the same deal where this guy... Uh, Wagner is coming in, and he'd received six hundred thousand dollars from a an AG His award law firm complex was from one Scott of Pruitt. Many law firms that well, so probably was Drew that, exactly, yeah. and 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 I think that's the give and take that we have on that issue. But I think it's an issue that will you know that will be off the board very quickly because it's not relevant to kind of the the future of his role on the cabinet. The state of Oklahoma owes colleges, universities, $150 million in promised matching funds for faculty salaries. Almost 60% of the money, more than $76 million, is owed to OSU, while more than $28 million is owed to OU. Lawmakers tried to fix the problem in 2008 with a bond issue. Not only did they not match the endowed chairs program, higher education has seen 26% reduction in funding from lawmakers since then. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Well, not only have we seen reduction in funding, we've seen tuition increase. We've seen you know, faculty uh, numbers at these universities well below where they need to be. 
both the two major prep burns targets at, uh, at Oklahoma State University and Jim Gallagher at the University of Oklahoma have talked about the desperate need to bring in, in, in particular, research-based faculty members and that the research-based faculty members that they do have at the universities right now, they're spending their summers teaching classes because, you know, normally these classes may be taught by incoming uh, faculty members or graduate assistants, but now they're being taught by research-level faculty members because they just don't have the money to bring in the necessary personnel. Higher education is an investment in infrastructure in the state, and whether it's through a bond issue or through some sort of a revenue measure, the state getting a plan together, and, and I think that no one in, in the state right now is under any illusion that it's all going to happen in the 2019 legislative session. But having some plan so that these universities be, can begin to understand what the landscape looks like over the next three to five years so they can begin planning for and budgeting for how they're going to pay for these positions that were promised to them you know, over a decade ago at this point. Neva, there was also another bond issue off, offered in 2012. I remember the big press gallery. Everyone talked about it from Gary, Mary Fallon and everybody. But yeah, nothing seems to be getting done on this. And it is a problem, and it is one that's going to take, Ryan is right, it's going to take a while to fix. I mean, this uh, the endowed shared program, when it was created in 1988 uh, to benefit uh, 25 colleges and universities uh, in, in Oklahoma, was a great idea. Um, it, then they came along and they had, as you said, in 2008, the legislature had to uh, approve a $100 million bond issue to try to play catch up. That didn't really work. Uh, <laughs> they also placed a moratorium at that time, you know, saying that they would limit it uh, to uh, $5 million, uh, the amount that the state would have to match any year going forward. So they've, they've got a whole system, you know, right now from the get-go that's out of whack. They're going to have to reconstruct it, fix it. I mean, they did make, uh, they did make an obligation that they should fulfill. Now, what that means looking forward in terms of uh, what we're going to do, particularly with the two major institutions uh, and and the ones that are most uh, uh, impacted by research and the endowed chairs, how that's going to look. I mean, at the OU Health Sciences Center, at the University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State University. I mean, those are things that I think uh, for the chancellor, uh, for the higher regents and for the incoming state administration, it's something that does, uh, I think, warrant uh, some very serious consideration quickly and right up front. Bills are already making their way out of the Senate. Senate President Pro Tem elect Greg Treat filing Senate Bill 1. It creates a new government office to conduct performance evaluations of state agencies. Neva, what are your thoughts on the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, or LOFT? Well, I think, I think the concept is strong. I think when you conduct performance evaluations of these agencies, that's something that's been talked about. I think there needs to be a structure and, uh, and a, uh, an entity that is really charged with this responsibility. I think, as, uh, as uh, Senator Treat said, I mean, the thing we need to look very aggressively at is, is not having another Department of Health fiasco, as we've, as we've already seen uh, earlier this year. Um, now, the structure of it, six to eight staff members, bipartisan, uh, a bipartisan committee, how that looks and how that kind of all shakes out in terms of the fine points and, and the nuances in, in going through the legislative markup and, and getting through the, the House and the Senate and to the governor's desk, that's, that, that's going to take some time. But conceptually, I think it's a great idea, and I applaud uh, 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 Senator Treat for uh, you know using his position now as the new leader uh, coming into the Senate uh, to be able to really advance this idea. And certainly we don't know what the final bill is going to look like, but uh, your thoughts first off on Senate Bill 1. Well, 
Well, you know, I think that, you know, Senator Treat is, we, we talked some uh, earlier about the dynamic of the governor and the legislature and how they've worked together over the last eight years, how the legislature has really led uh, the, the policymaking effort in the state of Oklahoma for the last eight years. I think that Senator Treat coming out right now as the leader of the Senate and saying, here's Senate Bill 1, this is, you know, one of the earliest instances of a substantive bill being filed that, that I can remember. I mean, you may have had, you know, some, you know, maybe cleanup language or something that, or bills that were reserved for a particular title of law, but didn't really have any guts to them just yet. This is really early in the process. I mean, we haven't even hit the first deadline weeks that are coming up in, in November or December for people to give you, give legislative staff just an idea of what they want right. to talk about. So this is really early in the process. The the uh, agency itself that we're looking at, you know, Loft, I think that, you know, the it'll be interesting to see how Governor Stitt reacts to a, another legislative or another government entity that's meant to police other government entities. I, I think that the goal here is laudable. Everybody wants to be able to, uh, to prevent another instance where we have a health department meltdown and fiasco. Uh, at, at the same time, how much of this is redundant? You know, where where does the state auditor and inspector play into this? Where does the Office of Management and Enterprise Services play into this? You know, what roles should they already be doing? Are they not doing this because they're not funded, because they don't have a legislative mandate? There's also a question of separation of powers that I think that this bill is going to have to navigate. I don't necessarily see it right now, but anytime you begin to look at the legislative branch encroaching into what is a predominantly the role of the executive, which is the administration of the government, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a question of whether or not the legislature has overreached its legislative prerogative. And Eva, I do want to get to that also because we're talking about the, the, the Republican Party who always believes in shrinking government as much as possible, and this is growing government. This is adding another government agency. It is, but it but it's also really at the, at the core what what I think Senator Treat is saying is that until you have real numbers and objective data, do you have a process that you can really begin to construct budgets intelligently at the legislative, uh, which is the legislature's uh, you know key issue that that they have to always uh, grapple with each session. Until you're able to do that, in order to set policy, in order to really track these programs, to find out whether there is redundancy, to find out whether there really is, uh, there are places where there are overlapping uh, overlapping services. And and I think in a an instance with Loft, it may create an opportunity to really kind of bring all of this together and uh, and to more intelligently look at it, which the the legislature, by its own admission, desperately needs to be able to more effectively write budgets and intelligently deal with the, the issues that have that have continually just been on the board with every session as they come into into, into the uh, Capitol. As it is right now, the legislature has to rely almost exclusively upon information that's given to them from the executive, from the governor or from state agencies. If we look at the corollary at the federal level, Congress has the Congressional Budget Office, CBO. You know, they're there to provide independent analysis of expenditures, appropriations, budgets, debt, whatever it is, to members of Congress. So, so that they, this so, thing would be able to... Yeah, so, I mean, I, to me, whenever I'm looking at this, I'm looking, you know, far be it from me or anyone else to say that we should be more like what's happening in Washington. <laughs> but, it, but it does give the legislature some independent... Because Another we saw tool. one of the things that happened with the health department was that there were these separation of powers issues that sometimes stood in the way, or at least legislators felt like they stood in the way of them getting accurate answers. I mean, there was talk of subpoenaing people to come talk to House committees, and it really became this investigative process where if they had their own internal mechanism, it could be more collaborative. Now, right. what authority they have over these agencies, that's where I say that there could be some potential separation of power yeah, issues. Yeah, and I, and I think that is a question. The, the authority issue has not really been addressed. It's 
more about collecting the information and being able to make more intelligent decisions, and I think that is something that would be welcomed. And there will be many steps before we finally get to that <laughs> point anyway. So, uh, um, The U.S. Supreme Court listens to oral arguments in an Oklahoma case involving tribal sovereignty and reservations in our state. Attorneys for Patrick Murphy, who was convicted in a 1998 murder, contend he should have been tried in federal court because he and the victim were Muscogee Creek tribal members. And the appeals court ruled Congress never disestablished the boundaries of the Creek Nation Reservation. So this could have a major impact on Oklahoma's tribes. Ryan, how do you think the Supreme Court will rule on this? Well, Rebecca Nagel wrote, uh, she's, she's in Oklahoma, and she wrote in the Washington Post recently, and she said, if Oklahoma wins, the obvious reason will be the only difference between the two cases, circumstance, not precedent. Because if precedent rules here, then the Tenth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, which previously held this and held that the state of Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction based on a 19th century treaty and a 19th century law called the Major Crimes Act, which gives the federal government exclusive jurisdiction over crimes, many as a list of crimes committed in Indian country. Uh, the, the precedent in the law should say that the government of Oklahoma, the state government of Oklahoma, had no jurisdiction to try this murder case. And I don't think anybody you know, doubts that the facts or is disputing that the, the facts at hand in the murder case are, are awful and reprehensible and that, you know, that you know, justice should happen there. There is this question, however, though, because the state of Oklahoma is putting forth this argument that if somehow the, uh, the, the tribes prevail here, and the, the treaties are recognized, uh, and the state doesn't have jurisdiction, that we go into chaos. And that's just simply not the case, because you know there, there are, there's still the ability for the federal government to prosecute. There's federal regulation. Congress can step in. And, and in many instances, these tribes have very sophisticated government apparatuses themselves, including courts and prosecutorial measures. The precedent, on the other hand, if the state of Oklahoma wins, there's a very dangerous precedent that's set, and that precedent would be this if the state of Oklahoma or any state simply acts as if this, uh, a tribe doesn't have sovereignty, acts as if a tribal boundaries have been abrogated and, and, and uh, disintegrated by operation of time instead of an, uh, an act of Congress, that is very dangerous for tribal sovereignty, uh, not just in Oklahoma, but around the country. Neva? Well, I think it, I mean, it, just the scope of, of the issue at hand, and I think the complexity, the fact that this has been going on for years and years and years, the appeal process uh, in this particular case, and now to infuse this whole this whole issue of whether or not the, the, the uh, tribal lands were ever, uh, were ever uh, properly uh, handled, you know, by Congress, as many assumed for 100 years had taken place, I mean, it, it seems to me a couple of things. One, uh, the Attorney General's office hasn't indicated whether or not they're going to file an appeal. So there's still a lot of, you know, I think there's still a lot of elements out there that are that are that are uh, open for question and speculation. But, you know, Ryan's right. I mean, it, at the core, I mean, it is a legal it, 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 for a layperson like myself. Yes. It is an, a terribly complex yes. idea and issue to to really try to grapple with, even to uh, uh, to begin to read and try to discern what we're talking about. But the implications are not just for one tribe. It's for all Indian That's nations right. and uh, and the implications on the judicial process uh, and the courts uh, for the state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma and for and for the uh, uh, the sovereign tribes is enormous. So I think it's going to be one of those things as we continue to see it uh, move forward.
forward and the and the debates and and appeals or whether or not they're advanced uh it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to watch and what was interesting about this ryan was there was it's in the supreme court it's a murder trial the murder itself never came up well, the it, actual, it, yeah. which I've never seen before in a Supreme Court, usually there's some... The, the Seems to Miranda be a real no issue on the, yeah, on the murder question. The, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 issue of, the issue of whether the, the murder occurred or not, or whether uh, the defendant in the case you know, should or should not have been found guilty, it was, it's really a matter of what court. Who has jurisdiction. You know, who has jurisdiction. And the, the assertion by the, the defendant in this case, uh, and by the, the tribes that have weighed in through amicus briefs, the, their assertion is that the tribes have jurisdiction here, and it, or the, the, this is Indian country. This is tribal land, and because of that, because of this this reservation that was granted by Congress and never taken away, Justice Kagan questioned the state of Oklahoma's attorney yesterday, you know, many times, and said, "What date was this act of Congress uh, abrogated? When did this act of Congress that created this reservation, that created this inter, uh, this uh, this Indian country for Native American peoples that had either been removed or were already existing in that area. When did Congress take that away? And she could never give their, their she could never she give a clear answer. it was basically done over time. It was done over time. And so that's, that's kind of the, this idea of adverse possession, that if you just hang out on a plot of land for long enough, that it becomes yours. Well, that is not how sovereignty works. It's not how sovereignty has worked in this country since an 1835 United States Supreme Court decision. So we're, if we're talking about following precedents here, Precedent seems to suggest that the tribes win, that sovereignty wins the day here. But I think that there is a real concern, and we saw it discussed a lot yesterday during oral argument about what happens, what the implications of that decision are. My uh, my sense is that the implications are not as dramatic and chaotic as everyone is making them out to be. And finally, in shocking news over the weekend, State Board of Education member Dan Keating, the twin brother of former Governor Frank Keating, died this weekend at the age of 74. Neva, what are your thoughts on Dan Keating? Well, first of all, to the Keating family, I mean, uh, I certainly uh, uh, express condolences. Uh, he, uh, Dan Keating was someone who had an exemplary uh, public service career. I mean, someone successful in the, in, the, in the business world, but someone who had a passion, particularly for pu- public education. And uh, his uh, current position serving on the State Board of Education, someone who was applauded for uh, uh, for his willingness to really give his time and, and devote the passion that he had to uh, to public education, someone who had uh, had appointments at the at the federal level, presidential appointments, someone who uh, had served in other places in, in state government and appointed commissions. Um, obviously, uh, the, this is a, a loss to the to the board. He was uh, coming to the close of his term i mean that uh, would be ending and the next governor will be appointing the major- majority of the the board right, right. Uh, uh, with uh, joy hoffmeister still chairing that uh, that board of education but um it it certainly i think it is uh it is appropriate to reflect on his uh, life and career and to uh, remember that uh, this is certainly the type of Oklahoman that uh, that we should uh, respect and uh, have high regard for their community service. Right. Well, and, and like Neva, my condolences to the Keating family uh, for their loss. And you know, it is, I mean, his, his life is, is an example of public service. I mean, the, the number of roles that he has held and number at, at, at Many levels of government, many of them volunteer. You know, these these are not jobs where you're you're walking. I in think and get, most all of them. I, think, I don't I, know yeah, that I, he had a paid job. I, 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 didn't, I didn't see one in in the in the, in the uh, uh, bio in his biography where he was paid. But I mean, these are these are volunteer positions. Somebody walks in, they're giving their time and their energy. They're very invested in it. And I, I think that you know, there's this there's this sense in American politics right now that if you 
commit a large portion of your life to government service, to public service, that there's something wrong with you, uh, that, that, you're, that you're suspect. And I think that that's just absolutely not the case. I think that most people walk into these roles because they really care about something and they really care about people. And, and, and in particular roles like this where it's not high profile, you're not getting you know, a lot of pats on the back, uh, you know, to the extent that people recognize you, it's because your twin brother is the former <laughs> governor of the state of Oklahoma. Um, that's, I mean, this is this the exactly the kind of public service that when we're talking to especially young people about getting involved, you know, it's, it's not the high profile things. It's not the headlines. It's not the big money. It's just, you know, in the trenches service. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the reflective views of KOSU. It's a, the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.